2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> Good morning, church. <clears throat> now, I think it's, well, I found it near impossible to not feel something emotionally after reading the story of Mephibosheth after reading and listening to the story that we just listened to this morning. Because it's a story that stirs our hearts. It's a story that gets us down into thinking about kindness, feeling compassion, and looking at someone who's hurting and watching their circumstances dramatically shift with only a few words and some pretty extraordinary actions. Here's the question I have. What is it about this story that moves us, though? What is actually the components of the story? What is happening here that kind of pulls at our heartstrings when we're looking and thinking about what's taking place? Now, one answer is that most people, I say most people because there are some that maybe don't feel anything, but there are most people who are moved by stories that display extraordinary kindness, when we he- hear a story, see an act of extraordinary kindness, when we read about an act of extraordinary kindness, it can move us. What David does for this man, Mephibosheth, is nothing short of extravagant kindness. What we see here is the broken, lowly, undeserving, raised to a place of glory, so to speak. And it's more than a rags to riches story. At its heart, it's a story of adoption. It's the story of an orphaned, crippled, outcast, gifted a place as a royal son at the king's table for always. It's a beautiful story. Which leads me to the next possible answer that this this story could actually stir our hearts. If you're a Christian today, the story might have stirred your heart Because it is a vivid picture of God's extravagant grace towards us. Did you see it? It's really hard to miss. 
This little story, it tells us of your story of redemption, if you're a Christian this morning. It tells me of my story of redemption. It tells us of God's great story to redeem a people to himself. To essentially raise up fallen sinful mankind out of the dust and bring us to his table. And so in that way, this story should move us. This story should cause us to worship this morning. And by God's grace, as we consider this text, my prayer is is that all of us just grow in our understanding and deepen in our love for the Lord, for he is good and he is gracious to us. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll get into this text. Father, thank you for this time this morning. God, as we have just all sung together, Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Every second we need you. We need you when things are going really good. We need you when things are going really bad. God, we need you all the time. And God, we need you right now in this moment. We need you. We need your words. We need your spirit to speak to us. We need you to soften our hearts so that we can receive the gospel once again. God, we need um, our eyes, so to speak, our spiritual eyes, so to speak, opened again to see the glory of Christ and salvation and it being a pure gift. God, help us to grow in in our worship for you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The sermon title this morning is Promised Kindness. Promised Kindness. Now, the author has two primary points that he wants his readers to take away from this text. Here they are for you, okay? So you want to understand what the, the moving narrative in the story is, is he, in chapter 9 is this. Number one, David is a righteous king who keeps his promises. He is a righteous king who keeps his promises or he keeps covenant. Number two, David is a kind king who shows the steadfast love of the Lord. He's a king who keeps his promises, and he's a king who shows the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's first look at how David is a righteous king who keeps covenant. Now, if you're here with us this morning for the first time, we've been going through the book of Samuel, which is broken up into two parts, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We're through 1 Samuel. It was the story, the origin story of the prophet Samuel, the origin story of the, the king Saul, and King David. We're now in the second Samuel, where David has now become the king. And what we've learned so far in second Samuel is David has now ascended the throne after a tremendous difficulty, after the former king, King Saul, pursuing him, trying to kill him over and over and over again. But now he has ascended the throne. The capital of Israel has been established. We read that his house has been built at second Samuel 5. He has restored true worship to Israel at second Samuel 6. The Lord has promised to establish David's throne forever, 2 Samuel 7. The surrounding nations that have, been, have infiltrated the promised land, that have been pressing and oppressing Israel, have, have now been subdued, and the boundaries of the kingdom have been expanded. That's 2 Samuel chapter 8. Went about that last week. And David has been making good on all of his royal responsibilities as the Lord's anointed king. In other words, David is slaying it right now. Things are really good. The Lord is with him. Chapter 8 ends telling us that David is consistently doing justice and righteousness before the Lord and before his people. Now here in chapter 9, David turns to another just and righteous duty. And what we read about here is that he wants to keep a promise 2 Samuel chapter 9, let's read verse 1 again. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now this isn't a random question for any king. This is an expected question from a relatively new king, but the motive that we read here is what's odd. It doesn't fit. Because normally, in this place in time, when there was a change in power, when there was a new king that came in, they would seek out the the former king's dynasty, the former king's family. 
and they would eliminate them. Their job was, okay, let's, let's get the, any threat, any potential coup, any potential uprising, let's remove this royal family, wipe them out. It was just standard practice. So for David to ask this question, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? It's, it's pretty simple. It's like, okay, yeah, that would be a normal question asked by kings because if there was, then let's go ahead and take care of that now so I don't have to deal with that later. This was effectively, again, the way to protect yourself from potential problems in the future. But David's motive is quite the opposite here. We read that he doesn't want to kill his potential rival or rivals. He wants to show them kindness. That, that is the odd part here in this text. Now, why would this be? Why is David wanting to show kindness to the opposing or the former royal family? The answer given the text is that David desires to keep a promise. It's not explicitly there, but it is there. Now, we aren't told how much time has passed between his conquest in chapter 8 and now in chapter 9, but the text reads as if David has recalled something that has led him to ask this question. The question, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? That something is a covenant that he made 30 plus years earlier with his best friend, Jonathan. It's a promise that he made 30 plus years earlier in his life when things were not going super well with his best friend, Jonathan. Now, if you can remember Jonathan, if you've been with us through this series of, of, of Samuel, Jonathan was King Saul's son. He was of the house of Saul. He was the heir apparent. Biologically, he was next in line for the throne. Jonathan was a mighty man of God. We've heard many stories of him, how he's been filled with faith, obedient to the Lord. Jonathan was a fierce warrior. He was a wise counselor. And what we read throughout 1 Samuel is that Jonathan was a devout friend to David. What's very clear in the Bible is that Jonathan, Saul's son, loved David. Very much so. David described their mutual love for one another as extraordinary in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. He went on to say that their love, Jonathan's love for David, was so extraordinary that he went on to say that it surpassed the love of women. As if to say the love he experienced from Jonathan was as intense as a wife's love for her husband. It was a selfless love. It was a loyal love. It was a death do us part, till death do us part kind of friendship and kind of love. In fact, they made vows or a covenant with one another to be loyal to each other, to look after one another and to show divine kindness and steadfast love to one another and their families, no matter what happened, forever. And the reason for that was because Jonathan knew that David was going to become king. And like I mentioned before, when a new king came into power, the standard practice was eliminate the family. Remove any threat to the throne. Jonathan understood this. And so Jonathan initiates this covenant with David because he knew David was going to be king next. Now remember, Jonathan was supposed to be the next king. He was the son of Saul. He was the heir apparent. He was next in line. It makes a lot of sense. But Jonathan, filled with faith, filled with loyalty, filled with love, knew God had other plans, submitted to those plans, and entered in this covenant with his dear friend, David. So David makes this unbreakable covenant before the Lord. And we first read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3. But the depth of the covenant is made clear to us in 1 Samuel 20. I want to read that for you this morning so you can see this promise that David is trying to keep in, our chapter, in chapter 9 this morning. Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, verse 14, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So they make this covenant, Jonathan and David. And they, they, this covenant signifies and is built on their steadfast love for one another and they're promising to continue to show kindness and steadfast love to one another. But before David ascends the throne, 
Jonathan, along with his father and his brothers, are killed in battle at the end of 1 Samuel. Now in chapter 9, again, we're roughly 20 to 30 years later. And for reasons unknown, and meaning they're not in the text, David is thinking back on this covenant. He hasn't forgotten it. Now it could be because David is just, he's in a great place in the kingdom. And maybe he's in a moment of worshiping the Lord and thinking back on all that God has done for him to bring him up to this point. And no doubt, reflecting back, he was thinking about how God used his dear friend Jonathan to bring him to this point. That could be why he brought it, he's thinking of this covenant now. It also could be because David has just entered into an amazing covenant with God. God has made these amazing promises to establish his kingdom and his throne forever. And David answered and responded to God's covenant by praising him in worship. And maybe it was that that covenant right there made me think, man, if God's keeping this covenant, if God is this faithful, man, I need to be as faithful as God in keeping my covenant. We don't know. But David is thinking about this covenant. He's thinking about his dear friend, Jonathan, and he wants to fulfill it. That much is clear in the text. He hasn't forgotten it, and he has every intention to fulfill it out of love for Jonathan and out of love for the Lord, because every covenant was made in front of the Lord, and consequences of the covenant would come from the Lord. So David inquires, and we see that his advisors find the guy who is most likely to know the answer to this question. That's 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there, still, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now two things here. First, we're introduced to Ziba. We are told he was a servant of the house of Saul when Saul was king. So this man was very familiar with the royal family. He oversaw the royal estate. He was someone who was trusted. His family was deeply involved in Saul's family. He would have been very close. So if anyone had information about any surviving royal family members, this is the man. He would know. He would have the inside scoop. And he did, we read. The second thing I want, to know, I want to point out is we see here what type of kindness David desires to show this descendant of Saul. Did you catch that in verse 3? It's beautiful. He wants to show this man the kindness of God. He doesn't want to just be showing the kindness. He doesn't want to do nice things. He doesn't want to just do the kindness of man. No, he wants to actually model his kindness after the kindness that he has experienced and received from God himself, what is this kindness of God? The Hebrew word here used is hesed. If you're with us in the book of Ruth, we spend a lot of time unpacking this word hesed. It is a beautiful word. In our text, it's used three times in verse 1, verse 3, verse 7. And the word hesed is a combination of grace, mercy, compassion, steadfast love, all wrapped up into one word. But it's not just a word or a feeling. It's actually an action. It's something that you feel and that you do for somebody. It requires movement. You can't just have this kindness without attaching action to it. It's not a word necessarily. It is a word and an action mixed together. Oftentimes, the one showing has said in the Bible is the stronger more capable person towards the weaker, needy person. It is a word used to describe God's steadfast love towards us, and we find it about 250 times in the Old Testament, usually hearkening back to God's steadfast love or God's kindness towards his people, towards us. So the core idea of this term is meant to communicate God's faithfulness. Faithfulness in his love, faithfulness in his mercy, faithfulness in his justice, faithfulness in his promises or his covenant. It is the same kindness that you and I experience and have experienced that has brought us to repentance, brought us to the faith in Jesus, and that continues to sustain us as Christians today. The fact that we're alive here today, the fact that we have a church family, 
to sing praises to God, the fact that we have breath in our lungs and that we know that God is our God and he loves us unconditionally, loves us no matter what, that nothing can separate us from his love, that is us living in the hesed or the kindness of the Lord. It's long-suffering, it's faithful, it's filled with grace and mercy, and it's abounding in steadfast love. So when David is saying he wants to show kindness, he is saying that he wants to relay the faithful, steadfast love of God that he has received. And we know from chapter 7, he is very mindful of it. And chapter 6, he's and eight, extremely mindful of God's steadfast, amazing, crazy love on him. And now he wants to relay that love to this son of Jonathan. Pretty amazing. I want to pause for a second and just think about this really quick. Isn't this the call on every Christian's life? That the love that we have received from God, the hesed of God, is given to us for us to just revel in. But not just that. It's for us to show and share with others. This is what David's doing here. He's received the love of God, the kindness of God, and now he wants to bestow that kindness on not just anyone, on an enemy, a potential enemy. John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment, Jesus speaking, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's a love received and a love given. 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And the Apostle John went on to say in chapter 3, By this we know love, that he, speaking of Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's a love received and a love to give. That's the call in every Christian's life. What a high calling. David desires to show the kindness of God to an undeserving man out of love for his father. Now, in verse 3, Ziba tells David there is still a son of Jonathan, and he's crippled in his feet. Now notice, Ziba seems to be a little guarded or protective over Jonathan here. He doesn't give a name yet. He just says it's the son of, of Jonathan. And he makes it a point to tell David that the son of Jonathan is crippled. This is essentially his way of telling David that this member of Saul's household is no threat because he's crippled. Israel's kings must have been or had to have been able-bodied enough to lead their armies into battle. This man was no threat. Ziba may have like, not completely believed David here as far as whether he was actually going to show kindness. Some speculation on that is after all, Ziba was the servant of Saul. Saul was double-minded. Saul was a liar. We learned a lot about that in 1 Samuel. And again, that this was not normal procedure. You didn't find your enemies or at least parts of the royal family just to bestow them with kindness. We don't know what Ziba was doing here, but Ziba seems to be ambiguous enough, but David presses in. 2 Samuel 9, 4. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Meshir, the son of Amal, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Meshir, the son of Amal, at Lodabar. Now, Lodabar was roughly 50 miles from Jerusalem, so it's a good distance from where David's at. We don't know how much, we don't know, we don't know too much about Meshir, the son of Amal, but one thing worth mentioning is that he is a man who risks his life to help those who are in need. He risks his life to help those who are in need. Later on in this book, in 2 Samuel chapter 17, David is on the run from his son Absalom. He's hungry, he's weary, and he's misplaced. And his companions are feeling all the same things David's feeling. Hungry, weary, misplaced. And we see in chapter 7 that this man, Mashir, is one of the men who sees the need and meets them with food, water, and provisions. He sees a need and he meets it. In a lot of ways, he shows the kindness of God. Here in chapter 9, he has been harboring a member of the former royal family who would have been viewed as a potential enemy of David, which would make him a potential enemy of David. And not only that, but Mashir was doing this for 10 to 15 plus years. This is a long act of compassion. And then on top of that, this man was poor and crippled and in need of extreme care. So it wasn't just taking some able-bodied stranger into your house. It was an enemy, potential threat to the throne, and it was a crippled man who needed extreme care and help. Mashir had nothing to gain from this. 
Now, this story isn't about Mashir, but I want to at least honor the man because he's doing what David is trying to do. He is showing God's kindness to the lowly and undeserving. That's beautiful. He's showing God's has said Again, church, let this remind us, okay, that we are all called into this act of loving and showing the kindness of God to those around us. Mashir is absolutely doing this here. So David send men, sends men to go get this son of Jonathan. Let's talk about who this guy is before we actually get, he actually enters the scene, okay? Now we first hear about this son of Jonathan in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. If you have your Bibles turned there, it'll be on the screen. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Here we're reading this kind of like the origin story, the backstory of, of Mephibosheth. He was five years old when his dad Jonathan and his grandfather, King Saul, were killed in battle. And when the news came, hit the house, his family began to panic, mass chaos, freaking out, trying to get out, trying to evacuate, because the fear was now the Philistines were coming for the royal family. They're just going to finish it. They're going to go there, wipe the whole family out. So we read that the nurse, in haste to leave, she drops Mephibosheth. She drops this five-year-old, is a five-year-old toddler? No, it's a little older, okay. This five-year-old child, I should know, okay. I should know this. This five-year-old child, she drops him, and we read that he is handicapped. His legs are crippled, and he is unable to walk. I mean, this is a really sad story. You know, I have kids and I, I just was, again, when I read texts like this, I run this grid through how I would respond, looking at my own five-year-old child and going, oh my goodness. So listen to this. This five-year-old kid loses his dad, his uncles, his grandfather, his inheritance, his status, his future, and his ability to walk in a matter of hours. Let that sit on you. Mephibosheth loses everything in a matter of hours. And then he's forced into hiding for roughly 15 to 20 years in fear for his life and the lives of those he loved. His life is flipped upside down completely. No doubt he's filled with sadness. There's heartache, there's frustration, there's fear, and there's shame. Not saying that's his entire experience as a living. I would imagine maybe Mephibosheth was grateful that he is alive and that he has Mashir. But it was a difficult road for Mephibosheth. In fact, the second part of his name, Bosheth, means shame. In a lot of ways, people would look at Mephibosheth and say, he is destined to sit in the dirt like a dog. He can't walk. He has no family. He has no money. He's worthless in a lot of ways. And then, possibly his worst fear, one day... Soldiers show up at his house and tell him the king has summoned him to his courts. So as if life wasn't hard enough, now the guy he's been hiding from is now summoning him. He's filled with fear. Picking up in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, the longer I thought about this scene, the more beautiful it became. But it is heartbreaking. Mephibosheth, this weak, broken, crippled young man, roughly in his 20 to 25s, full of fear, full of uncertainty, falling on his face before David, hoping for the best. He's hoping for mercy. Now, I've had the, the blessing, and I have the blessing and privilege of having good brothers in Christ who are severely handicapped. Brothers who've been, one particular brother who's been handicapped since birth, his whole experience, life experience has been in a wheelchair. 
He does not know any different. He does not know what it's like to use his legs. And when I watch this brother try to go from his chair to the ground and back up again, which I have seen, it's hard not, you have to hold back emotion. But for him, it's physically exhausting. It is not easy. It is a lot of work. Mephibosheth, this broken, crippled man, is exerting a tremendous amount of work to get to the ground, to lay down on his face, to bow before the King David in fear, trembling, essentially throwing himself at the feet of David for mercy here. He's hoping for mercy. This is the scene right here. Now let's put ourselves in David's shoes for a moment. No doubt, David, I, th- I think David was excited to meet Mephibosheth. That's not a stretch, I don't think. This is the son of his best friend. The friend who he loved so dearly. Now we're not clear, we don't know. It, it appears that David did not know Jonathan had a son. Jonathan sh- could have had this son or probably had this son while David was in hiding and there was little, there was little to no contact. So he obviously didn't know there was this son here, or at least knew that he was alive. So David is seeing, hearing about this and seeing this son for the first time. I don't also think, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that Mephibosheth probably resembled his dad in some way. Right? I mean, you look at my kids and by God's grace, they look more like mom. But there is some resemblance. There's usually some resemblance, for better or for worse. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jonathan could have resembled his dad in some way. But David doesn't see just this man. It's not some exciting, wonderful reunion to talk about, oh, I loved your dad. He sees a young, crippled man lying on the floor, trembling in fear, hoping for mercy. And we read that David's response is this. He says just his name, Mephibosheth. Now, the punctuation in the ESV translation communicates strong emotional feeling. The Bible doesn't get into detail about what he was feeling, how he was feeling, but it does give us that one hint that he says his name because he knows his name, and he says it in a way that communicates strong emotional feeling. David is seeing his best friend's crippled son lying on the floor trembling before him, and he's moved with compassion, love, mercy and grace, and he's filled with Hesed, the kindness of God. That's a powerful scene. Now, I want to stop for a moment here because I had this thought when I was thinking about my own Christian experience and those who I know and love and that have shared with me, but as Christians, when we're broken, when we're burdened with sin, when we're feeling the weight of our shortcomings, Sometimes it's hard to believe that God is still looking at us with his chesed, with his kindness and his goodness and his steadfast love. That God is filled to overflowing with compassion and grace when he sees his broken children. Sometimes we come before the Lord thinking the worst, like Mephibosheth coming to David, even though David is trying to like lavish him with kindness. All he's thinking about is, am I going to die Is this king going to execute me? Sometimes we can think that way. We can think the worst, that God will look at us and just be done with us. And that that can cause us to live in fear, right? That can cause us even to avoid the Lord, or at least to avoid God's people, (laughs) to avoid prayer or accountability or all those things, because we're living in this place of fear. I think this story gives us, or at least reminds us, of of the unique, accurate way that God looks at the person who's found in Christ. The broken sinner, God will always show his said to his sons and his daughters, no matter how we feel, no matter what we've done. If you are in Christ, God's love for you is steadfast and always present. Why is that? Well, the short answer is because we are in Christ, he is in us, which means when God sees you and me, he sees the Son. We resemble the sun. Let that encourage your hearts. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Now, 
Mephibosheth sees David and falls on his face to show respect. And David says his name. But before David gets another word out, which I would imagine David's going to follow that up with like, I'm here to show you kindness, you know. Mephibosheth just quickly jumps in and identifies himself as David's servant. He says, I am your your servant. In other words, he's trying to do, again, all he can to communicate to David that, hey, I am no threat. I just want mercy. I serve you. I'm paying homage. Like, you are the king. I am not. And I understand that. And David sees this, and like a cup filled to overflowing, David just starts pouring out grace upon this man. Verse 7, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. That is a beautiful verse in the Bible. This is what my friend Josh would call a grace bomb. It's like just, it just went off. And it blew up Mephibosheth's life in the best kind of way. Let me break this down a little bit. First, what David does is he removes Mephibosheth's fear. He says, do not fear. In other words, no harm is going to come to you. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of my presence. Don't be afraid that you are here. I seek no harm against you. David removes his anxiousness. He says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father. Again, that word has said, David disarms him by stating his intention to show grace upon grace, compassion, and steadfast love. Imagine like hearing that, laying on the ground, trembling for your life. Mephibosheth hears this, and he's disarmed. David then removes his poverty and uncertainty. David says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. What? I'm going to give you everything you lost. I'm going to give you all the riches that you've, that you've thought that you have lost that don't, don't belong to you. They belong to me now, but I'm restoring it all to you. You are now set up. No doubt this meant that all of Mephibosheth's needs and then some have been met for his life. He is set up. He is richly provided for. And then David does something unbelievable. He gives this orphaned, crippled young man the status or the privilege of a son. You see that? He says, and you shall eat at my table always. To eat at the king's table, this was a privilege reserved for family. What this means is that Mephibosheth is going to have ongoing, consistent, constant fellowship with the king at his table. I mean, he's having all dinner conversations now. He is experiencing the kindness of God. Verse 11 in chapter 9, the author literally says this, that Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. That's amazing. In shock, Mephibosheth rightfully asks the question in verse 8. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, we don't know if David answered this question. The author doesn't write about it, but we know the answer to this question. He's done nothing. The man has done literally nothing. If anything, he's probably subtracted. He's done less than nothing. Mephibosheth has done absolutely nothing to deserve the king's kindness here. Church, do you know where I'm going with this? The parallels are just too hard to not to, to, to pass up, right? This is the gospel. Without a shadow of a doubt, Mephibosheth's story is your story. It's my story. It's every man, woman, and child story that has put their faith in Christ, that are now unified to Christ. It's all of our stories. Listen to the parallels, okay? This is just, just bear with me here, okay? Like Mephibosheth, we were crippled from the fall. That's very clear in Genesis 3. We fell from grace. We rebelled against the Lord. We have nothing to offer to God. We're broken. We're needy, spiritually bankrupt. We're unable to pick ourselves up out of the dust and walk in righteousness. We stand before the King of Kings deserving of nothing, worse than nothing. We deserve death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve that. That much is clear. But like David in our story, 
God made a promise. And God keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says this, For you are a people, speaking of God's people, or Israel this time, speaking of us today, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought to you, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9, Now there, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God promised to show his said, his steadfast love to his people, and he kept his promise in Jesus Christ. Amen. Titus 3, 4 tells us, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He sought us out in the person of Christ. He forgave our sins and brought us before his throne by the blood of Christ. He took away our fear, guilt, and shame through the power of Christ. He made us partakers of the eternal inheritance through the resurrection of Christ. And it is through Christ alone, church, that we have been given the gift and the privilege and the place at the king's table for always. Isn't that what we really are saved into? A place at the king's table. The gospel invitation is a call out of the dirt or the dust of our sin and shame. And, it, and it's a pull up or an invitation to the royal palace at the king's table to feast with the king. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would ask you, have you accepted <clears throat> that invitation? I'm not getting choked up. I'm just... <clears throat> okay. Have you accepted that invitation that is laid out before you this morning? Because I'm here to tell you this morning, by the power of the gospel, that God is calling you into a relationship with him. If you are hearing the Spirit calling you, prodding you, sensitizing your spirit and your heart to want to say yes to Jesus, he is welcoming you and calling you to his table. Jesus said in Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Salvation is a feast with Jesus. Why would we want to go to that party? Church, we should be asking ourselves the question that Mephibosheth is asking here daily. Who are we that the king of heaven would show such regard for dead dogs like us? We are nothing. If you think you're something, I'm sorry to tell you, you are nothing. <laughs> we are saved by grace and grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, listen to this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved <clears throat> and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, listen, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. After David tells Mephibosheth what he will do, we read in the text that he immediately acts on his word. He calls Ziba, Saul's old servant, tells him all that he told Mephibosheth. Let's read it again together. That's starting in verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, he's making this clear, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Ziba and his house, they're commissioned here to serve the royal estate again. And the transfer of property has been moved over to Mephibosheth. And so David makes it clear that Mephibosheth is, is supposed to be taken care of off of the fruit or the produce of this land. The Ziba's family can also enjoy the produce in this land and live off of this land. But he makes it abundantly clear that Mephibosheth doesn't really even need it because he will always be eating at his table like one of the king's sons. Now the chapter concludes with an ending that falls just short of a happily ever after. Verse 12 and 13. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servant. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Awesome. Last sentence. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now, you read this text and you go, okay, awesome. Mephibosheth has a son. The Lord has blessed him. What an amazing gift to have a child, have a son to carry his name on. Even that shows the grace of David. The house of Saul is going on. He lives in the city of peace. He's protected and loved by the king. He has a place at the king's table, enjoying daily fellowship with the praiseworthy, with King David. But there's still this one thing, and it's that last sentence. He is still lame in both of his feet. Now, I asked the question, like, why did the author put that in? Why is he reminding us of this? I'm not entirely sure, but it feels like it's almost like he wanted to make sure the reader understands that things are great, but things could be better. Like, Mephibosheth's situation, the circumstances, had been dramatically improved, but he's still crippled. He still has this affliction. He still will be carrying this for the rest of his life. He still can't walk. And I think there's some powerful reminders here that I want to close on. Number one, I think this last sentence in this story, we, we, we like, the past couple of weeks we've been like, man, David is the ultimate type of Christ. We don't worship David because David ain't Jesus. But David is a type of Christ. He is showing us how wonderful Jesus is And obviously, he pales in comparison to Jesus. But I think this last sentence helps us to see that clearly, that David is great, but he is no Jesus. David has the heart in this story. He has the wealth, the power, the means to dramatically change Mephibosheth's life. But he doesn't have the power to heal his legs. And I think, arguably, that was Mephibosheth's greatest need. Like, we think about our earthly circumstances, like, well, we, we tend to think about our own personal afflictions. We can say, oh, money would change everything, this would change everything. But when your health is affected, man, all you're thinking about is, man, if I could just get my health dialed in, I don't even care about anything else. Mephibosheth has been living with legs that don't work for a very long time. I would say this probably was, in his mind, or at least in a lot of people's minds, the greatest need to be met. David couldn't fix that. Jesus came, across, Jesus came some 800 years later and looked at the crippled, the blind, the mute, the deaf, the leper. He looked at all of these people, and with a word, he healed them. Power just flowed from him. He was moved with the Hesed kindness of God, and he was able to dramatically change people's lives. And he did that through healing in his earthly ministry. But even he knew Jesus knew that was not the greatest need, right? We read this in the story of the paralyzed man who was healed, which is easy to say, pick up your bed and walk and heal a lame man or to forgive him of their sins. So David, although could dramatically change Mephibosheth's circumstances, he couldn't fix his legs and David could not save him from his sin. David is great, but Jesus is greater. And this last sentence, I think, reminds us of that. The second reminder is this. When we come to Christ, he radically changes our lives. Amen? 
It is an amazing transformation. The Lord Jesus redeems us. He turns broken, jacked up people into still broken, jacked up vessels, but they hold and they house the treasure of God. We, he gives us hope, joy, peace. Um, he gives us, he clothes us with his righteousness. He gives us new morning mercies. He gives us a family. He gives us so many wonderful things in this life, but, but nowhere in scripture are we promised complete deliverance from all our afflictions. And we're reminded of this every day. We live in a fallen world. We have things that we're dealing with and enduring. And some of us won't experience deliverance from those things until we get to heaven. Mephibosheth's story reminds us of that. But it also reminds us and it it points us to the fact that there will come a day when all that is lame will be made whole. All that is broken will be made well. Every tear will be wiped away and we will, like Mephibosheth, feast with the king, but not just a temporary earthly kingdom. We'll feast at the marriage supper of the lamb for all eternity. And there, my friends, there will be no lame people broken people, messed up people, hurting people. There will be joy and pleasure forevermore in the presence of our Lord. I think communion reminds us of this. And I'm bringing up communion because we're talking about being brought to the table. Communion is the Lord's table. It is a shadow of the Lord's supper. At least once a month at this church, you're reminded that this is temporary with our little plastic cups and our little crackers. But we will one day go to heaven and experience that in its most fullest form. An amazing feast with Christ. And I'm looking forward to that day. I also want to say this. Although we still live with our afflictions, oftentimes do, the scriptures are abundantly clear. Like David and Mephibosheth, the Lord Jesus completely provides us with the means to carry through this life. That's important. Philippians 4.19 essentially says as much that God promises to supply every need of ours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So although we might not have the certainty of being freed from our afflictions in this life, we absolutely have the certainty that Christ will carry us through this life. Amen? Let me close with this, and I mean that. Some 100 years earlier in the book of Samuel, the prophet Samuel's mom, Hannah, prayed a prayer to the Lord. And here's what she said in that prayer. Again, roughly 100 years earlier than this. In verse 7, she says, 2 verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, and inherit a seat of honor. Church, our God keeps his promises. Our God has promised to show faithful and steadfast love. His has said to us, and like Mephibosheth, he has raised us from the dust of our own sin and our shame, and he has given us a permanent place at his table forevermore. Amen? Let's pray.